Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Brand Your Practice podcast, where you get to learn about branding, marketing, and scaling your private practice. I'm your host, Brent Stutzman, and today we're going to be talking about how to pay your clinicians. Should you do a split fee, hourly rate, salary, and which one might be best for your private practice? And to help me do that today is David Norton. Um, David is the owner of growingourpractice.com, a wonderful website. But before he created this fantastic website resource for private practice owners, he launched his own private private practice and he grew it to three locations with 40 clinicians and 10 support staff. Now he is in retirement and what he does now is he consults with practice owners on how to grow their mental health practices. Welcome back to the show, David. Thank you, Brent. It's always a joy. Yes, well, thank you. Yeah, we're going to be talking about how to pay your clinicians from fee structures and talking about contracts and lots of things in this episode. Right. But first, I'd I love for you to tell our listeners a little bit about the research that you conducted, which is really kind of the genesis of this conversation we're having today. Sure. So I realized and that everybody, all practice owners are, are struggling with some basic questions. Um, like what percentage, if we're going to do a productivity-based pay scale or split fee pay scale, what percentage goes to the clinician? What percentage goes to the client or to the practice? Um, how do you structure that? And I realized that nobody was sharing. <laughs> everybody was keeping their information to themselves. So I thought, yeah, exactly. I'm not showing you my cards. You know, you you hold yours tightly to the chest. So what I did was I uh, came up with about 10 questions um, about structural pieces of mental health practices and put it out on both through my website and through LinkedIn. And I've got over 3,000 people on my LinkedIn profile and asked them to fill out this survey. And if they filled it out, then they could see what everybody else said. <laughs> yes. So, so uh, if you want to know what everybody else is doing, then you got to share your stuff. And you know what? They did. Uh, 40, 40 practitioners uh, took it and ran with it and shared their stuff. And so then I had this uh, survey monkey data to deal with, and I tried to summarize that and put that out into the world, and uh, people are loving it. Uh, I get comments all the time, um, and I, I picked up some, some consulting gigs off of it. So <laughs> I, I, I just think there's a hunger out there for uh, real data uh, about practices. And so this was a nice little project to do. Uh, well, yeah. I mean, I signed up for it. I was curious too. <laughs> right, right, right. And, and I think I ended up using my wife's private practice as, sure. as sure. the example for that. Um, I yeah. was just a brilliant idea because there's there's a ton of questions around how this. And we're having right. this conversation now with a lot of my clients on. I mean, we can get in this. We'll get in this later. But maybe we need to start offering benefits to keep good clinicians. Like, right. No, maybe it's that was one of my questions was about benefits. And boy, oh boy, is there a wide range yeah. <laughs> of how yeah. people answer that from nothing to uh, some really pretty, um, you know, pretty widespread benefits. So, yeah, it's interesting. Well, let's yeah. jump in because we got a lot to cover uh, today. Yep. So, lots so to we'll, cover. 
Why don't you jump into the first point that we have here? Well, I think you have to start by realizing that the IRS sets some rules here, and you can't just do whatever you want. You got to pay taxes, uh, and so basically, all employment agreements boil down to two arrangements: you're either hiring somebody as an independent contractor, or you're hiring them as a W two employee. If you're hiring them as a W two employee, you as the owner have a larger tax burden. You are paying half of their social security tax. If you are hiring them as an independent contractor, they pay all of the social security tax, um, which is about a difference of about 7.65% of the payroll amount. A lot of clinicians do not understand this. So they end up comparing apples to oranges and don't realize it. They think that it's just about the percentages and it's not. It's also about are you paid as an independent contractor? If you are, you're going to end up with doing estimated taxes quarterly, and you're going to have more obligations on your side as the employee. If you if you're hired as an employee, a W-2 employee, then the employer is going to offer some things. Um, they're going to pay half of that taxes. They probably are going to add some benefits in there, like they want to pay your licensing fees maybe your malpractice insurance, and maybe some other things mm-hmm. beyond that. So, And they, they would not do that with independent contractors. They would not pay for the licensing fees or the malpractice insurance. So it depends. So larger practices tend to go with W-2 employees. Um, and part of that is because the way the IRS, the IRS would like everybody to be a W-2 employee. They would prefer to deal with an organization than deal with all these individual peoples who may or may not keep records very carefully, et cetera. <laughs> so they would rather everybody, so they, they do kind of bias it toward the W and they're huge fines. If you get this wrong, if you uh, like $50,000 an employee fine, I mean, not small. So a lot of practices are moving more and more toward uh, W2 employees and moving away from the independent contractors. Um, there's an awful lot of conversation about what that means. Um, mm. And it's beyond what we can get into now. It's The IRS has several pages of rules about uh, classifying employees. So mm. typical bureaucracy. <laughs> well, there's, you know, there's even a philosophical discussion to have with That's right. practice owners. So, what some practice owners, they might start off with, as, with contractors because that's a little safer for them, right? Because it's going to be right. the money thing. They're trying to figure it out. And now with more mature practices, they're like, actually, I want more control over the time. That's right. My, like, I want to be able to do staff meetings. I want to be able to dictate exactly. more. And in order to do that legally, <laughs> right. you right. need to have them as an employee. And, uh, and- and that was that was the way my practice migrated. We originally had everybody as independent contractors, mm-hmm. and then, oh, maybe two thousand two thousand and one, we switched everybody over to W two, and we we were using a productivity based system. We had to make adjustments to that scale to make it roughly equivalent. Mm-hmm. You can't get it exactly equivalent just because of the way taxes are quirky, but you can get it pretty close. Um, yeah. And, and, and so uh, we had our CPA work on that and, and actually had each of our employees uh, sit down with the CPA to have it explained because 
therapists are notoriously bad at understanding uh, mm. financial arrangements and uh, tax implications and all that stuff. Yeah. So well, we wanted to really give great. them that benefit of, of actually uh, access to our CPA and uh, not having to pay for that. So that was uh, helpful in the transition. But, yeah. yeah. Well, let's let's jump into the data. What what did you right. what did you find well, out? Well, what I found was pretty interesting. Um, so you, you can really have three different categories, right? We had practices that had only W two employees. We had practices that only had independent contractors, and then we had some that had some were independent contractors and some were W two employees. So they and I've, and I've talked with some practice owners about that. And basically what they do is they bring on people as independent contractors. They hit certain milestones. Then they become in, uh, W-2 employees, um, get to a certain productivity level or some other, maybe it's length of time or some way that they migrate people from independent contractor to W-2 employees. Well, what I found was 42.5% were only working with W-2s. That's all that they were working with W-2 employees. So 42%, 27% were only doing independent contractors. So there you see the shift right there. Uh, more people are using W-2s than are using independent contractors. This is a sample of 40 practices. Uh, so 40 different practices from around the country, um, different arrangements. And then 30% were using a, a mix. We're using hmm. both types. Um, I thought I thought that was pretty interesting. I didn't have any idea what the numbers were actually going to turn out to be. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm so, actually surprised how high it is for only W two employees. Actually, right, right, right. So people are making the commitment. It's a little bit more accounting. You have to be as the owner. You have to be managing a payroll system. Mm-hmm. We use QuickBooks, which I think is a very popular one. But some people hire a payroll company that does mm-hmm. this and uh, manages all of that and keeps track of it um, at the end of the year or at the beginning of the new year. Uh, by the end of January, you have to send out W-2 uh, forms to all of the employees that you had in the previous year. So there is a little bit of paperwork involved, but once the system is set up, everything is so automated. Yeah, It's, it's really not complicated. Uh, it just means setting it up right and having, you can get help pretty inexpensively yeah. for doing did you? So, I'm curious if there's any other thing about those that that breakdown that that surprised you. I was a little bit surprised that there were that number of people that were doing both. So they've they mixed their. I could I could understand that there'd be a segment about a quarter of them, a little bit more than a quarter, who are just doing independent contractors. Those are probably people starting out. And that they just have one system, and they're going with the simplest system that they could get. Mm-hmm. Um, but then to do both, um, that seemed a little more unusual to me. But then they they, they may have. I, I know a number of them have those kind of. We start out as one category and move them to another. Yeah, you know, I wonder. Oh, sorry to interrupt you there, David. No, let's go ahead. Uh, I wonder if because uh, I know that if they're if if they're pre-licensed. Right or mm-hmm. they're licensed, they're provisionally licensed. They're not fully licensed yet. Right. I believe they have to be employees of the business. That's right. And some licensure laws have that language in there that you cannot function as an independent contractor 
with that lower level license or unlicensed people. You have to be working in an agency, and that the way they define that in rule is mm-hmm. W two employee, and that's for supervision reasons. Uh, right, that they're under somebody else's license. They're really operating under somebody else's license. You know, this oh man, this is so fascinating because like I, I would imagine there's some practices that actually like the business model of of having majority of interns and not That's as right. like seasoned fully licensed. And so you might yeah. have a ton of employees because typically the profit margins are going to be a little higher for you with um, right. th- those who need supervision. Um, That's right. And so, That's right. yeah, that is the like profit margins are higher, but they're, but they're, but they're difficult. They're not on insurance panels. So you have a different kind of mix of mm-hmm. payers, um, which in some cases works fine. A lot of not-for-profits, for example, have other funding sources than insurance companies and, and out-of-pocket payers. They have a lot of donors and a lot of fundraising that they do, that quote, Department of Development, um, that is generating money for the organization. So licensing isn't as central uh, for them. Um, and they don't have to jump through the hoops of the insurance companies in terms of getting them on panels, et cetera. Yeah. So yeah, it's it it that does that does affect um, the model that people are using and how they're employing people. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's helpful. Yeah. Let's jump to the next point you have. Right. So then, once we get beyond the IRS, then our employers have some decisions to make uh, because you can pay just an hourly fee, um, which is just figuring out what that is, and it might be thirty dollars an hour or fifty dollars an hour or whatever. That puts the responsibility uh, for everything for, from collections point of view on the employer. The employee has no vested interest in whether fees got collected or wh- how much were those fees or anything about those fees. Mm-hmm. They're going to get paid for an hour no matter what. They show up, they punch the clock, they leave, they get they got paid. It's a pretty simple way to do things. Um mm-hmm. And so a lot of practices will use hourly people for filling in, uh, will be part-time people that fill in some gaps in the schedule. They maybe have a niche that they're able to address or something like that. And so they'll just do a very simple uh, hourly uh, rate and be done with it. And it's it's pretty simple. Okay. Uh, that's, that's the simplest plan. Uh, the, the salary, go ahead. Oh, I was going to, I know of one practice owner that does all hourly. Right. And it's, she's got it down to a system. And, right. you know, it's like depending on, uh, I, I imagine when you, one way you could do this is depending on experience is sort of like what right. bucket you're in as far right. as how much you get per, um, per client or per yeah. hour per appointment. Exactly. And, and, and that works fine. Um, as long as you know the payers. Uh, the payers. So, so when you think about how mental health is organized, it's partly paid by the client. It's partly paid by insurance company. And then in the not-for-profit world, there are other grant organizations, granting funding organizations that pay based on certain criteria. Mm-hmm. So uh, as long as you know where the money is going to come in as the owner, yeah, you can do an hourly thing, and that's pretty simple. The, the hourly rates tend to stay on the lower side hmm. of what a person, of what a clinician can actually make because all of the risk is on the employer collecting money. And so there's no vested interest in the, in the, in the employee 
uh, caring about that. And so you're going to get a little bit lower rate. So uh, that's that's just the, the way the system breaks out. The next most complicated are the salary people. And a lot of not-for-profits use salaries. Uh, uh, most of them do. Um, uh, there are practices that use salaries, uh, private practices. Uh, and that's uh, going to be determined by, by the employer as to what they think the market rate is for uh, that clinician. Mm-hmm. Now, if you think about it in the not-for-profit world, there's a lot of things that clinicians do besides just see therapists. Um, they might do consulting in a school building, or they might run group programs, or they might do all other. They might even do fundraising uh, mm-hmm. on behalf of the organization. So there, that salary makes sense when you have a lot of other activities than just psychotherapy going on in your organization. Mm. Then uh, you're you're purchasing a 40-hour week for that clinician, and then they're doing uh, whatever they're doing in that 40 hours, some of which is psychotherapy, but some of it is probably not psychotherapy. Yeah. Um, and so that's kind of an interesting way. This, um, the the salary one has been the most talked about with among my uh, practice owners that I support. Yeah. And, and it's been tricky to figure it out. But we feel yeah, like a lot of them, we figured out like, okay, we actually, we have the marketing system set up where there's actually a really consistent flow of intakes coming in to actually support somebody, but they also uh, on a salary. And then mm-hmm. that means maybe benefits as well. And, right. but what they're also saying, what they're thinking is, look, there's certain aspects of this business that I don't like, like writing letters to referral sources or following up right. with these types. Right. But when you right. do a salary and employee, then you can right. actually say, hey, I know you're a great clinician, a clinician, but there's these right. other strengths that I see you ha- having that could actually support the business and then assigning tasks. So they're just not doing pri- uh, client work. What you can say is, look, right. I'm going to pay you a salary. I want you to see 20 clients a week. All right. That's, uh, I want you to get to 20 clients a week, right. maybe have 25, up to 25 available hours. But on top of that, I want you to do, I want you to lead a once a month lunch and learn or something right. like that, or sure. what, whatever, continuing education, something right. like that. Right. Um, so we've been exploring as ways to scale and take things off the, the um, owner. Pri- yeah, it's the productivity side. And so I was like, well, just think of the stuff you don't want to do right. <laughs> and give it to right. them. Right, right. That 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 is a, a very common uh, argument in favor of the salary position. There are workarounds that I think people come up with who are using a productivity-based system. So let me put that out there too, yeah. and then we can start making comparisons between the three. So productivity, you're you're figuring out how much is collected in a given time frame, usually a month. Although mm-hmm. I have heard of people using longer time frames. But, but usually it's how much was collected in a month, and then uh, a percentage of that goes to the clinician, and a percent of that is retained by the practice. Um, and the practice then covers all kinds of expenses out of that, uh, the percentage that they're keeping from the employee. Um, the, this, is, this is actually a, the most complicated one because you can hire people uh, in this, in, in use productivity systems for W-2 and for 1099 employees. 
there are people that are doing it all productivity-based independent contractors and those all productivity-based W-2 employee system. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it's kind of interesting uh, that that that, that would work out. So you're asking about all the other tasks that aren't clinical. How do you deal with that? Well, what we did, we used the productivity-based system. And what we did was we paid people uh, certain fees for other things. So they were supervising. They were, uh, we didn't pay them for marketing. Everybody did marketing. 100% of our clinical staff did marketing in the community. We had incentives for doing that, but it wasn't monetary incentives. It was, it was basically, basically uh, peer pressure. Everybody was uh, everybody was communicating with everybody else about their little marketing plan, and the the culture was such that everybody wanted to keep up with their neighbors as to what they were doing. And frankly, once you get full and busy, it's not hard to keep your marketing system up. It's mainly ma maintenance of relationships with existing um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. referring people. It's not, there aren't a whole lot of cold calls you can even do once you've saturated your market. That's right. So it's more about the maintenance of those relationships and doing a good job with them. So at any rate, um, you've got these three pay systems. You, they all have strengths and weaknesses. Uh, the hourly people, uh, essentially what we did was we convert, we had both hourly and productivity based. So we paid hourly, for certain activities. So if you were supervising practicum students or you were supervising other employees, we paid you an hourly fee for that. And that was on top of your productivity base. So we really merged two systems there. Yes. Um, and and uh, that's uh, roughly equivalent to what a salary person does, right? So mm -hmm. uh, trying to get the benefits of each of the three different options for, for pay. Um, can I ask you a question on, because uh, sure. I've done this with, and a lot of my practices uh, owners have adopted something like this, is like an incentives, incentivized productivity pay. So, right. so for the first, so right. much money collected in a month, you get this percentage, let's say right. it's like 50%, and then anything sure. collected over that threshold, you get 60 That's or right. 65% or something. Sure. Uh, and sure. that seems to work for 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 some people, right? It incentivizes to, to work to get past that threshold and bill That's right. so they can make that higher, um, that higher tier. Yeah, we, we did, did exactly that? that. Yeah, we did, did exactly oh, really? that. Okay. We had, we had three levels of, of, uh, percentages and it was all based on how much was collected in a given month. And then, uh, since my retirement, the practice has added yet another thing. And that is if you, if it, yeah, so it just gets as complicated as you want to make it. Uh, so if you hit a certain dollar amount, and I'm blanking on even what the amount was, then you get an added bonus at the end of the year. So they put a bonus structure on top of the productivity base. Another way of incentivizing your most senior productive uh, people to stay, stay on board and stay committed. Um so oh, fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that an, an interesting idea? So they put a, so they put a bonus system on top of a product, a basic productivity bank. Would it be the bonus bait, a percentage base, or is it sort of like, here's yeah. the dollar amount or it's a percentage of what you brought in then maybe it is, it's a percentage of 
how much. So once you cross that threshold, um, then you got a, I'll say 5%. I don't know. Maybe it's 3% or 2%. What some percentage mm-hmm. of added bonus on top of what you already got throughout the year. Oh, I like that. Isn't that something? Yeah. So that's another way to kind of say, yeah, hit these targets, push a little bit harder, mm-hmm. you know, keep, keep going. Because when you, when you have a productivity based system, it's the risk is shared. It's shared between the employee and the owner. When you have a salary or hourly, the risk is largely with the owner. Mm-hmm. They've got to collect the money to pay those. So another way to think about it from an accounting point of view, and nobody thinks about it this way, but weird old guys like me, <laughs> is you you a, a salary and an hourly is a fixed cost. Productivity is based is variable cost. So if your income goes down in a given month, your payroll goes down in that given month and a productivity base. But if it's salary, nope, you got to hit that dollar amount. Your pay, that amount is going out whether it came in or not. Mm. Same is true with the hourly. It's a little more variable with hourly because they may not have worked as many hours, yeah. but you still got to pull that money in. So it's mm-hmm. the difference between variable costs and fixed costs. And from my, the more resilient systems, I have as much stuff in the variable costs as I can. So if business goes down, it's spread throughout everybody, not yeah. just the owner taking the hit. Yeah. Yeah, I, you know, that's such a good point. And what, especially for my wife's private practice, we're thinking right. salary, so our costs are fixed with salary. Right. That's but right. Our, but our, the profit limits is, is really unlimited. You know, I mean, it's just... Well, theoretically, the, I theoretically, mean, the income is, fluctuates up and down month to month right. or day if to you day, have, If you have someone who's a high performer, but here's the trade-off. We found that um, some of the younger folks that are clinicians, right. they really want health benefits. Like that is something that's, that's right. for them is a lot of security. So we'll say, okay, we'll take on more risk, right. which means you probably get paid less. But we'll right. take on more of the risk and give you more benefits because that's a security that you want to live with, right? And that's, that's totally right. fine. And we yep. actually kind of want to offer that if that's a possibility, if that right. works out. Right. Um, right. But the, the thing yeah. is, is you want to make sure they're a good fit too, right? You, so you <laughs> Well, that's, that's right. And, and so we had, we had a health insurance benefit. It was utilized by, I would say, two-thirds. Uh, no, no, not that much. I would say 40% of our employees use the health share benefit, use the health care benefit. The other uh, 60% were paying, uh, were, were utilizing a spouse's benefit, frankly, from another, uh, another, or they, there were a few of them, one or two, that would go on the uh, marketplace and, and get their own. Uh, get their own. Th- that, that's another option for them. Yeah. Um, most of the people would do that for one year and then they join our system the next because we could usually beat the rates actually um, by by doing it. And, and now the cost to the owner is you have to pay 25% of the premium cost for the employee if you're providing a health care benefit to your employees. Mm-hmm. So 25% of the premium cost for the employee, not for the whole family. So you might offer a benefit for the whole family, but you're only going to pay for the employee that 25% for that's right, a yeah. that's a rule that is uh, in the insurance company. 
but I, I mean, you can, well, this is another tangent on that, but it's uh, real yeah. quick is, but you can kind of structure however you want, right? You can that's cover right. 25% or 50% or a hundred percent if you wanted to. Okay. That's right. You can go above 25% if you want. Um, and I even know some practices that do a workaround where they are charging back the employee. I don't know if that's legal or not, but that's what they're doing. <laughs> they're charging back. So I, I'm not asking for It's a gray just, area. It's a gray area. It's a gray area. And, uh, not not I'm not accountant and a tax attorney, so I don't get into that stuff. <laughs> I do know what's happening. I yeah. do know what's happening. Yeah. But, well, let's keep going. What else did you find yeah. in your research? Well, so when 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 you start thinking about productivity based systems, then the question that everybody has: Well, what percentage goes to the clinician? And the, there is no data out there. So I asked that question of my participants, my forty participants. And they told me, uh, and basically what they told me is, um, it's most of it, 78% of it for the independent contractors is between 50 and 60%. 50 and 60% goes to the contractor. Hmm. Now that means that there's 20% of those pra of practices that responded that are outside of that. They're either below 50%. Or they're above 60%. And there were some, a few that claimed that they were giving away 80%. And I thought, how can you make a living uh, as an owner if you're giving away 80% of the collections mm. to your employee? I wish I could ask, answer that question. I, I don't know the, the answer to that. Now, maybe they had a really low rent or were working out of their houses or working out of a church basement or something. I don't know mm -hmm, mm -hmm. how that worked, that they could give away that much, but they were, they reported that. So basically between 50 and 60% covers most of the independent contractors. That's largely true as well for the W2 employees. So 75% of them were between that 50 and 60% range. So it seems pretty robust to say that most practices are finding uh, a percentage somewhere in that 50 to 60 percent that is going to the employee. Mm -hmm. And then okay. the practice is keeping either 40 or 50 percent of the uh, collected money okay. and, and using that to cover the expenses of the practice. And you say, what, uh, what are those expenses? Well, there are actually quite a few. Oh, Space sure. is expensive. <laughs> Uh, technology is not cheap, uh, computers, uh, you know, software, um, telephones, uh, all of that stuff, all the things, uh, all the things. And the list is probably long. Yeah. Those are the big ones. Um, support staff costs. Uh, that's a fixed cost that the practice is paying for. Um, all the tools that the support staff might utilize, uh, that's usually not free. So you're, right. you're, you're coming up with the list starts adding up as you, as you go along a lot. I, I find a lot of people underestimate how much it's going to cost for them when they hang out their own shingle. Yeah. They think that, Oh man, they're taking 40% of my money. I'm, I should be able to keep all of that. Well, you're not going to keep all of that. You're not even going to get close to keeping all of that. You may end up keeping 40% of it. Uh, you know, uh, you, you, you may, the, the typically uh, practices, the expense ratios are about 40%. 40% of collections end up going right back out the door on expenses, yeah. space, telephone, 
computers, etc. So, yeah, mm. malpractice, licensing fees, everything. This goes all, on. Yeah, yeah, all yeah. the things. You know how long the list? It's a long <laughs> list. It's a long list. None, none of them huge, except the space. Um, the space is pretty expensive. Yeah, and they all and add. If up. you ever do a build out in a space, that's really expensive. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. You get it to suit you. So anyway, the percentages on these productivity based largely between 50 and 60%. Interestingly, even those that had mixed, that had both independent contractors and W-2s, sometimes they were using the same formula. And I don't get that because it, as an independent contractor, the, the, the as a W-2 employee, you're paying more taxes. Right. For that employee than you are for an impact contractor, but you're giving away the same amount. I didn't understand the logic of it, but I saw the data and there it is. There it is. People are doing it. <laughs> uh, so if there's a, if there's a way to do it, they're doing it. I, I, that's, that's really the, the, the most robust finding is uh, people are finding ways to do it. Yeah. 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 Well, I see. I think we have a couple, two more points left. Why don't you right. jump to the next one? Okay. Well, I, I, I think there's a lot of confusion about contracts as well. So I wanted to say just a little bit about that. Um, there's really basically two arrangements that people come up with. Uh, at, at will employment, it means that an employer does not need to give uh, uh, any reason for terminating an employee. And frankly, not even any notice. Most states, the default employment agreement between an employer and employee is called at will. And that means that it's the same for the employee. The employee is not obligated to give two weeks notice or any other mm -hmm. kind of notice. They can quit, leave, walk off the job and don't have to give explanation. That's called at will. That is not the way I wanted to operate my practice. And so we created an employment contract with the help of many attorneys over the years. And that is way more typical. And what is in an employment contract, the term is usually spelled out. The renewal process is spelled out. How benefits and compensation is figured out is spelled out in black and white. The obligations that both the employee may have or the employer has, those are all spelled out. How records are handled in terms of who owns them. It's usually the practice that owns them. And the, and they then the, the employee has access to the records and can utilize them even after termination when the contracts end. But it still is the employer's uh, record to maintain. Um, how the termination may work, yeah. any kind of restricted covenants. So the contract, the employment contract spells out an infrastructure that guides um, how the union occurs, how the separating occurs, and how we operate in the midst of that between those two points. Um, it's so and, important to have that the, spelled the, out. Yeah, it is in helpful writing. to have it spelled out, have it written out, and, uh, you know, that's really then becomes the guidelines for uh, how the how the uh, the relationship operates. Yeah. For the term of the contract. Yeah. yeah. When it comes to we money, had our contracts, it's important. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> when it comes I was going to gonna money. say we had our contracts renew every year. 
and that was to give our employees an opportunity to see it again and mm -hmm. sign it again and uh, recommit. Uh, we, we didn't withhold those contracts. Uh, we, you know, but, but at least, and, and most organizations do that. If you have an employment contract, teachers, you sign it every year. Um, you know, any other kind of organization that does employment contracts, you're pretty much going to re-sign it every year for that contract, uh, for that period. Yeah. So anyway, I, I, I have, well, go ahead. You, you had some things you wanted to well, I was—it's basically what you stated here. In fact, you helped me because I was um, working with lawyers to update the contracts that my clients use, and uh, so you had some really helpful things. And we—they, these guys wrote out a very long contract, and I think it's helpful. It can be really intimidating to therapists, but but what you do is you need to have it down in writing. So you don't want to leave any guesswork, especially in the sensitive times of maybe if you leave a private practice or. Right. Asking for raises or whatever that might be, uh, right. you just have that written down so there's no misunderstanding. And to have it renewed every year, well, I would recommend that all the private practices, like you just have, like let's say that you take the month of June and that's in, when you renew all the contracts. Right. So just do it at right. one time. That way you're not forgetting. People don't right. feel overlooked, and you just you exactly. just do it. You just have the determine the relationship conversation that's every right. year at that time. So, yep, that's exactly what we did. We did it in January, but it was the same thing. Yeah. Yep. Well, David, before we go on to our final point, sure. um, I want to remind the listeners about a free resource that they can take advantage of today. Look, m most mental health professionals open a private practice to help more people, to make more money. Uh, but the problem is they often lack clarity on where to start. And that's why I created the How to Launch Your Private Practice Comprehensive Guide. It's a free guide that walks you through the very beginnings of launching a private practice from creating a simple business plan to finding the perfect office space to naming your private practice, how to incorporate your practice and creating an intake system and so much more. So to, to find that guide, just go to brandyourpractice.com slash startup dash guide. So over the past five years, I've helped launch and grow four private practices, and I detail the steps you need to take and the mistakes you need to avoid when launching your counseling practice. So just go to brandyourpractice.com slash startup dash guide, and you can download that today. In fact, it's just really a big, long, a long blog post that you, can <laughs> that you can read, but it details all the things there that you need to know. So get that guide today. All right, so let's go on to the sixth and final point, David. <laughs> yeah. So my, my last point is just to say there are certain things that are beneficial about a particular contract. Uh, I think when people are first evaluating a position, they ought to be looking at the whole picture, not just one clause in a contract or, or any, or, or percentages or any of those kinds of details, because I think it really begins with how are the cases? Are you, are you going to get referred cases? Are you going to get supervision? Are you, is there any mentoring going on here? Is there a, a kind of reputation that you're piggybacking off of? Hmm. Those, those kinds of structural pieces that are really uh, are going to determine whether you like the job or not. Uh, whether you got 50% or 60% or how that all works, that really is quite secondary to to those other kind of more personal kind. If you don't have cases, you don't have clients, 
you're just going to be sitting in a cold office, uh, you know, looking in the mirror. I mean, that that's not great. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're not moving toward your licensure goals. You're not moving toward any goal. You're just uh, spinning your wheels. So early career, I think you ought to be looking for those kind of experiences that are generating the kind of activity that'll help you mature as a clinician and grow. Um, and that means generating a case log. Mm-hmm. Uh, then you, you, of course, you want to evaluate what your employer is offering you and the whole deal, the whole package. And yes, that might include benefits uh, and health insurance or retirement matching uh, opportunities for continuing ed, investing in you as a therapist, the reputation of your employer, um, opportunities to learn. Um, those are all things that I saw in my survey about uh, there were some practices clearly doing a lot in those areas and others that were doing minimal amounts or none. And most were somewhere in the middle. Um, we're, we're doing a few, but not all. Um, yeah. they, they, they probably couldn't afford to do all and, and still make the profit margins work. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but they were doing something. And so that's what you really want to be evaluate when you're looking at a contract is really much, yes, the detail matters, but, it's the bigger picture and whether you're whether it sets up a good experience for you as a, a clinician trying to grow and develop yourself. Um, so that was my last and final point. Oh man, David, thank you. I'm so glad you did this survey. It was so helpful. Yeah, <laughs> it was, it was a fun thing to do. It was, it was a lot of work and, and it, and it, it occurred over several months. So there were people, and, and I'm just grateful that people grabbed hold of it and were willing to share their info. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> show, we could all learn. Show their cards uh, a little bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Show a little. You don't have to show every detail. You didn't have to send me the contract. But, you know. <laughs> but tell me some of the pieces. Yeah, yeah. Well, how can people uh, get in touch with you and find more about uh, your consulting services? Well, my website is probably the big access. I get about 3,000 people looking at it every, every month. Wow. And uh, the, it's called growingourpractice.com. And yeah. growingourpractice.com. And, it's, and, and I really just wrote it. Uh, it's got 130 posts on it it's on all kinds of topics related to private practice. Some about just clinical practice in general. But a lot of, most of it is about uh, private practice issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, uh, on the website, you'll find ways of reaching me, email, phone numbers, etc. And, uh, it just um, dropped me a line and, that, and I respond. Yeah. Well, you're yeah. a great writer and the content on there is so, is so good on that, on your website. So thank you, Brian. Yeah, it I really is. That. And I want to have you back on because you, I, you know, <laughs> of course, glad I love having these conversations with you. You're, you know, you have, you're a wealth of knowledge. So. Um, I, 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 and, and I'm at that generativity stage in retirement. I, I don't need to build anything new. I just, <laughs> I just want to share what I know and, well, and I enjoy doing that. Well, that's yeah. a tremendous gift. So thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Yep. All right, folks. Thanks for listening. If you found the conversation useful, subscribe to the podcast and please join me again for the next time, uh, for